Coming up, the quest for titles in the NHL and NBA are finally here. I'll handicap the playing tournament, the first rounds of both sports, including a recap of the Islanders' thrilling OT victory in Pittsburgh yesterday afternoon. With all the controversy surrounding Medina Spirit the past 10 days or so, he will not be front and center at the Belmont Stakes as he came up short at the Preakness. I'll get into the NFL schedule to target some key games, primetime matchups, and who has the hardest schedule of them all. <clears throat> Plus, a lackluster first quarter in Major League Baseball, a preview of the second major golf tournament of the year with the PGA, so get ready for another action-packed hour-plus of sports talk with yours truly, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well. Feeling fantastic. Another week is here. Another Monday, which means a brand new podcast. And I'm glad you've stopped by to get your fill on everything that's going on through the sports universe through my eyes, ears, and voice as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 194 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, May the 17th in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows. We're roughly at the quarter mark of the Major League Baseball season. Not many surprises, which means the possibility of a less-than-stellar baseball season, or one that'll be tooth and nail to the finish. 
Also, the Jerry Kalanick era has begun in Seattle, so brace yourselves, Mets fans. We'll see where we're at on the diamond later on in the podcast. Also, I was spot on with a prediction last week regarding who Tampa Bay will play on opening night of the NFL season, but was a couple of weeks off on what will be the much-hyped, much-talked-about Brady versus Belichick matchup in Week 4. I'll get into some of the primetime and holiday matchups as well as which team has the toughest schedule of them all. And if I bring up this question and you're a listener of the podcast, I'm sure you know which team I'm talking about. We'll get into that later on. Medina Spirit didn't have enough to seal the deal on Saturday evening as he ends up third in the Preakness down in Pimlico, Maryland. What does this mean for the Belmont Stakes? Obviously not a lot of drama, but it may be a little bit bigger than you think. I'll get into why later on. And with the PGA lined up this Thursday... Who could be in line to win the next tournament on the golf calendar here after last month's Masters with Hideki Matsuyama winning? I'll preview that and much more, including my hero and zero of the week. Usually by this time of the calendar year, we're into the deep end of the conference semifinals in both winter sports with the NHL and NBA. And hopefully next year at this time, that'll be the case. But let's deal with the here and now as we're ready to embark on the quest of crowning champions on the ice and hardwood. And to me, this is where the sports stove has lots cooking. You have the playoffs on the front burners. The MLB is slow roasting in the oven. That'll take us through the summer. So we have plenty of time to wait on that. We have two-thirds of the Triple Crown of Racing in the books. Another golf major just days away. The Indy 500, for those who are interested in that, which is two weeks from yesterday. And the NFL scheduled to stir the pot on all the back burners. So let's get that appetite satiated and feast on the smorgasbord of sports as we have a ton to chew on and we'll tip it off. With the NBA, as the season concluded yesterday evening, that sets us up for the playing tournament starting tomorrow night with both Eastern Conference 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 matchups. And then, of course, the West will be on Wednesday night. And we'll get into that, as well as some of the first round matchups that we'll see here in the East and the West. We can't go through all eight possibilities of this first round because we have to deal with the playing scenario that will start tomorrow night. And that's where we'll kick us off. Here on the podcast because this NBA season, even with it being 72 games and starting three days before Christmas, it seems like it's been an eternity to get to this point. But we're finally here. And we could erase the regular season, forget about all the matchups, all of the tiebreakers. We could break that down until we're blue in the face. But as we get set for the first ever playing tournament of the NBA I understand you could look at last year because of what took place with the coronavirus and then the bubble, and this seems a little bit more legit because you have four teams involved for those two spots, the 7th and 8th seed in each of the Eastern and Western Conference, and from there, we could proceed to move on to those top eight, have all the scenarios set up for the conference quarterfinals, and away we go. To start us off tomorrow night with Charlotte and Indiana... Charlotte is a team that is pretty much coming in wounded, losing five straight. They will not have Gordon Hayward there to anchor the young Bucks in a one LaMelo Ball in particular and the rest of the squad. And Indiana has been one of those teams that have obviously made it this far. If it wasn't because of the playing tournament, they would be nowhere near the playoffs. So you wonder if they're going to have some extra life here. They'll be able to play in their building And Charlotte right now, it doesn't look like it bodes well for them to move on to play in that 7-8 matchup. So right now off the bat, I'm going to pick Indiana as the team, based on home court, a little bit more experience, 
Charlotte, I'm not going to say that they're happy to be there, but with the way that their season had ended, and even with LaMelo Ball being out for a chunk of those games in the middle of the season, maybe they'll have enough to start off the game with some juice, some flair, but will it last over the course of 48 minutes? I don't think so. Therefore, I'm going to say Indiana moves on to play against the 7-8 winner, which will be the later game on Tuesday night between the Celtics and Wizards. And quickly with the Celtics, this has been a season from hell. Nobody in their right frame of mind, especially myself, yours truly as a Celtic fan, expected this type of result. We get COVID injuries. I believe they're the one team in the NBA that have had the most COVID cases or COVID games lost throughout the course of the year. Couple that with Jalen Brown being out for the postseason and obviously out for the playoffs with a surgery that had to be performed on his left wrist for a tendon. So you're not going to see him. You already have situations with health regarding Jason Tatum with an ankle. Also, Kemba Walker with a neck. And the list goes on and on with all the maladies and all of the stress, whatever you want to call it, if you're part of the Celtic organization, to think that with an upstart Washington Wizard team, I'm not going to go as far as saying that they've been a buzzsaw of a team here over the last 54 games, but considering they started off 3-15, and and since then they went, I believe, 31-23, and which is pretty good considering where they started, and we know about the exploits of Russell Westbrook, obviously tag team there with Bradley Beal, and the Wizards look like they're going to be a tough out here in this playing tournament. And would I be surprised if the Celtics were to lose a game where they're going to have to fight for their lives to play against the 9-10 seed? As of right now, I'm thinking that's going to be the case. Because the Celtics had to scratch and claw just to get to the point where they had to comfortably be put in a position where they had the 7 seed. But at the same time, losing to the Knicks yesterday, even though they had pretty much nobody in the lineup... They won in Minnesota, which was a game they had to have because they didn't want to go into this tournament with a five or six game losing streak. Because remember, they lost those two games to Miami. They lost inexplicably in Cleveland on Wednesday. And then winning in Minnesota, topped that off with the Nick loss. They would have been among the likes of the Hornets as well as the Spurs, which we'll get to in a second with long losing streaks heading into this tournament. So right now, If you're a Celtic fan, you cannot feel confident. Now, I'm not going to say the Wizards are going to be world beaters or have been despite their plus eight over the last 54 games of this regular season. But I do not feel good with this team. I could see them coming in as an eight seed for whatever the reason because Indiana and Charlotte, and Indiana will be tough. And Charlotte, they just beat recently at home. I could see the Celtics going in as an 8 seed and then they have to play Philly in the first round and we know what that's going to look like. So I'm going to predict that right now. I could see them losing to Washington where the Wizards will get the 7 seed and then the Celtics will go ahead and play at home because they'll have the higher seed amongst the 9-10 winner and with me picking Indiana, Indiana will be at Boston there on Thursday. I'm going to say Boston wins and the playoffs, I would assume is going to start Sunday. They're not going to be able to start Saturday because you have to mix up the East and West and you need at least a day for some travel because with the West starting their doubleheader on Wednesday and then they'll have their number eight seed game on Friday, there's going to have to be at least a day for those teams to travel to wherever they're going to go, whether it's 
Uh, obviously, there's going to be Utah in this particular case because that's going to be for an eight seed. And then you're going to have Sunday, the full slate of games, I'm sure, starting at 1 p.m. on Sunday. And then Monday, you're pretty much going to have, I guess, games starting probably in the 5 o'clock hour. Unless they're going to break it up to where you're going to have the four games the first day and then you're going to have three, three, pretty much throughout the week and it's going to be spread out over the course of two weeks, which is how the NBA usually does it. And right now the schedule is undetermined because we have to wait and see what happens here with the four teams here that will kick us off tomorrow and Wednesday night. And now let's get to Wednesday night because when we look at this first game between Memphis and San Antonio, the Spurs, as I mentioned, coming in, loses the four straight. Memphis, remember they had played in the play-in last year against Portland, which they lost where Portland made it into the tournament as an eight seed after beating the Grizzlies and then losing to the Lakers in the first round down in the bubble in Orlando. But Memphis, I know it's tough to pick a young team led by John Morant to go up against a Spur franchise that has been the model of success here over the last two decades plus. But as we all know, this is not the same Spurs lineup. This is not the same Spurs DNA. Who knows? Maybe coaching... And some experience will prevail at the end of the day with the Spurs. Would I be surprised if the Spurs ended up winning to go ahead and play for that eighth seed? I would not. But I'm going to pick Memphis here only because the Spurs are just a shadow of their former selves. And I understand it's tough to go against an organization like that. Same in football with the Patriots. It's tough to bet against Belichick, especially when you're going up against a young team. And here in Popovich, but I cannot see the Spurs prevailing here because this is just based on what I've seen throughout the whole year. Not that I've watched every Spurs game, but as I said, this is not the same Spurs team that we've come to know and maybe not love, but know and understand and get a grasp of here over the last pretty much 20 some odd years. And then you have the Lakers in Golden State, which I know a lot of people are going to be focused in on. We know the matchup, LeBron versus Curry yet again. Obviously not in an NBA final setting, but still this is to see who's going to be entrenched in that seven seed. And for those who think that the Warriors are going to have a shot in this game, and obviously they do, they're in the game against the Lakers. But unless Stephen Curry goes for 60 points and Draymond Green has a game reminiscent of the Finals runs that they've had there in the latter part of the 20-teens. I can't see the Warriors coming out victorious here. I know LeBron is now back in the mix. His ankle is a lot better than it was a couple of weeks back where they had to put him back on the shelf. Anthony Davis, I get he's been hit or miss down the stretch. But the Lakers, I believe, will do just enough and maybe a little bit more for them to beat the Warriors and be a part of that seven seed where they'll go up against the Phoenix Suns. And then as far as Golden State Memphis, now they just played here last night to the tune where Curry scored, I believe, 46 in the game, became at 33 years old, one of the oldest scoring champs in NBA for a season. I believe Kobe Bryant also did that at the age of 33. And for... Curry to get to the finish line here and to have that type of performance, you wonder whether or not if Memphis in the back of their mind are going to be thinking, if we do happen to play them once again and the game will be in Golden State, will that be enough fuel for them to put them over the top? 
And that's one that you'd have to question because it would literally be just three days after that, provided if Memphis does win and Golden State loses, where they'll just rematch a few days later. And something to keep in the back of your mind, if they do face off on Thursday, or excuse me, on Friday, and whether or not Memphis will just have enough to push them over the edge to get that eighth seed and be a part of the Western Conference playoffs. Now, I would think at the end of the day, you're going to see Golden State there as the eighth seed, and they'll play Utah in the first round. But don't be surprised if Memphis does pull off an upset. And when we look at the grand scheme of things, if there is that team that would be a surprise exit in the first round, you'd have to look at the Celtics in the East as well as Golden State in the West. Now, of course, you could say the Lakers as well, but there's no way the Lakers are going to lose two games here. I mean, that would be monumental, and the league will be choking on their kale salads and their chai lattes, depending on what time in the morning that they wake up to find out if the Lakers have been ousted out of the postseason, so that's not going to happen. But nobody's going to be surprised if San Antonio doesn't make it. Obviously, Memphis is Memphis, no disrespect. Same for Charlotte, Indiana, Washington, even with their surge, if they were to happen to lose two games, would anybody be surprised? Maybe a little bit, but nothing earth-shattering. And despite everything that's happened with the Celtics this year and how they played, etc., but for them to lose two games, it'll be a bit of a surprise because of the teams that they'll face off. More so, not maybe Washington, but the Charlotte-Indiana matchup, if they were to lose that game, then geez, a lot of people would think the Celtics were a bunch of frauds this year. So that's what we have there with the First round people. Now, again, I can't get into the 1-8 and 2-7 matchups in both the East and Western Conference. We have to wait and see that it plays out. And I'm not going to speculate, well, if the so-and-so team, let's say Golden State isn't the 8th seed and Memphis is the 8th seed. I'm not going to have a matchup of Memphis-Utah or Golden State-Utah. Let's get to that point. And in fact, by next Monday, I'll have a better grasp and could possibly handicap the first round because you would think that Sunday will kick off the NBA playoffs and the first block of games will be played. Who knows what the matchups will be. But I would think by Monday, even after day one, I'll still have a preview of what will lie ahead in the Western Conference. And if not, I'll post something on my social media feeds, which I'll detail at the end of this podcast. But the one eight two seven matchups we'll put aside for now and we'll concentrate with the East first on the 3-6-4-5 matchups. And the 3-6 matchup is a fascinating one from this regard. The Bucks will host the Heat in game one of a best of seven. And remember, these two teams faced off in the conference semis down in the bubble last year to where the Bucks, looking to rebound from the previous playoff, going to a conference final and losing to the Raptors to where now they face the Heat. And the Heat pretty much gave it to the Bucks to the tune of a five-game series win. They won the first three games. Giannis was hurt, did not really play, I believe, off the top of my head. He barely finished game four and did not play in game five due to an injury. I would think the Bucks are going to be salivating, and they played very well here down the stretch. Tooth and nail. All right, they put the pedal off the metal toward the very end, knowing that they were going to be a three seed and not try to push for that one seed where the Sixers have the top spot in the East. But this is going to be an interesting matchup, and I think it's going to be a long series because the Bucks, if they have any grit, any toughness, they will look at that series last year and know that they were pretty much embarrassed. Let's just put it bluntly. And they're going to want to exact some revenge here. Now, we know about the Heat. We know about their... 
culture. We understand that when you have a guy like Jimmy Butler there leading the attack to go along with Duncan Robinson, with a lot of the good bench role players that they have led by Andre Iguodala. A lot of these guys long in the tooth, but you would think that the Heat will put up a big fight here against the Buck team that has more talent. We understand coaching, the edge is going to be with Miami, but I can see the Bucks coming out of this based on last year. Giannis, he has a lot to prove here in this postseason and just postseasons in general because of just the recent history with the Bucks over the last couple of years. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if this goes seven games, but I'm picking the Bucks in six. I got to give Miami some respect here to at least push it to a game six. But the Bucks should prevail. Drew Holiday is going to be a big plus here defensively. Not only that, but another scoring option to go with Giannis and Chris Middleton. So I would think the Bucks will have just enough this time around as opposed to last year. So I'm picking them in the 3-6 matchup. As far as the 4-5 between the Hawks and Knicks, I know Knicks fans are going to be jumping up and down knowing that not only are they going to host a playoff series in their building for the first time in forever, but they have home court advantage and they're going up against a Hawk team that, remember, fired their coach midway through the season in Lloyd Pierce. They bring in Nate McMillan. He's done a phenomenal job. We know the team is led by Trey Young, but they have a lot of very good players on their team. They actually score pretty well. And this isn't going to be a foregone conclusion for the Knicks fan. And not to say that I've micromanaged every Atlanta Hawk game this year, But for those Knicks fans that are thinking that, oh, we're playing the Hawks, this is the matchup that we want, we have home court, think again. Now, I'm not going to come on here and say that the Hawks are going to beat the Knicks in a series, but I would not be surprised if this goes the distance. I could see this going seven games. I wouldn't be surprised if the Knicks get off to a 2-0 lead and then Atlanta comes back to win the two games down there and then it becomes a home court series. Do not take this Hawk team lightly. This isn't a team that's going to be confused with the Dominique Wilkins, Tree Rollins teams of the 80s. But at the same time, be careful what you wish for when you have an opponent knowing that, oh, I don't want to play the Heat because of everything we mentioned about the Heat a little while ago. Or I certainly don't want to play against whatever other team it may be in the first round. Of course, the Knicks fans not going to be worried about the Celtics or even the Hornets for that matter. Because this is your first time in the postseason in eight years, As a Knicks fan, you can't puff your chest out and think that all they got to do is just tip off the ball and the Knicks are going to roll to a five or six game win series and let's get ready for round two against Philadelphia. That is not going to happen. I will say that the Knicks will win a seven game series, but beware Knicks fans, don't think that this is going to be a cakewalk. Now watch, as I say this, the Knicks will win in five and then forget about it. Might as well start the parade route up the Canyon of Heroes for the Knickerbockers come mid to late July, but that's not going to be the case. One series at a time, I think the Knicks will perform well. Obviously, they have the coaching on their end, although Nate McMillan has done a stupendous job. But with Randall being an MVP candidate and everything that is pretty much transformed in that building with this COVID year, lack of fans, in fact, that the increase will be, I believe, 20% now. So with the Garden holding almost 20,000, you're going to have roughly... 4,000 in the building as opposed to 1,800. So that's going to be a plus. So I'm going to pick the Knicks here in seven in this first round. And as we turn our attention to the West, you have the 3-6 matchup between Denver and Portland. This is a tough one only because 
Portland could shoot the lights out of the ball. We know about that backcourt and even Carmelo Anthony who could chip in coming off the bench. And Denver, who will not have Jamal Murray, as we all know, but they likely will have the league MVP and a one Nikola Jokic. But Denver has been phenomenal all year, even with the additions that they brought in during the trade deadline. But I would think Denver will play another long series. If you remember two years ago in a conference semifinal, both of these teams stretched it to a seventh game to where Portland won on the road in Denver. Again, that's two years removed. But I would think Denver, with everything that they've done since then, making it to a conference final last year against LeBron and company, slow start to the year this year, but a very successful year in a very competitive West. I'm going to pick them to go, I'll say seven games. I, I want to say six in the worst way, and there's nothing against Portland. But I could just see Dame hitting for 50 in a couple of these games, especially at home. So therefore, I'm going to push this to the brink and have Denver come out in seven. And then the Clippers and Mavericks. This is a rematch of the first round last year. We all know about the big shot there in game four where Luka Doncic, who had that 35-foot rainbow three, and it looked like Dallas was going to be the team to upset the Clippers in the first round. But that was not the case as the Clippers, who were in that three seed for quite some time, and even though tied with Denver with a 47-25 and 25 record, with Denver having the tiebreaker, I see the Clippers winning this in six, just like I saw last year. And that's going to segue to the storylines. And I know usually I kick off with the storylines here, but I wanted to get into the playing tournament because that's going to be at the forefront right now before we even get to the main part of the tournament. But when we look at the NBA storylines, and there are plenty, and not in any particular order because... You could go in so many different directions, so many different angles to say what are some of the top or even key storylines heading into this postseason. And I'm going to click them off in rapid fire succession. So here we go, people. Number one, it's time for the process to deliver in Philadelphia. We know about trust the process. We know about all the draft picks that they've accumulated over the years. Some good, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. Some not so good, Markel Fultz and Jaleel Okafor, but here they are, a one seed home court throughout the Eastern Conference, and there is no excuse for this team not to get there, but the one question that you'll have is Doc Rivers. Now, we know Doc Rivers won a title in Boston in 2008, but recently with the Clippers and a lot of the foibles that he's had over the years, including last year against Denver, you got to wonder, Will his coaching resurface or will the pressure mount so much that the team does not perform to the expectations that all of Philadelphia has been waiting for that elusive NBA championship? And we know that if they don't get to a finals this year, it is going to be disappointing to say the least. That's number one. Number two, Brooklyn's moment has arrived. We could go back to the Billy King trade of 2013, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, etc., having to bottom out of the franchise there in the mid to the late teens. We understand that all the draft picks, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown going to Boston, the ownership being transferred or pretty much sold to Joseph Tsai from Mikhail Prokhorov to bring in Kyrie and KD, the culture and philosophy that was built in the back end of the teens into this new decade was pretty much blown up on the day of James Harden being brought here from Houston to have their own big three. 
and only playing in eight games from the middle of January until the end of the season. And they did play there on Wednesday night to where James Harden had 18 points. But I believe Kyrie sat that game. So you can't even count that one. But here it is. The Sean Marks GM and the owner Joseph Tsai have sold their basketball souls this past offseason and even into this season to make sure that they can secure that NBA title. And as I said just a second ago, now's their time. As far as the Clippers, we know that they're physically capable, but are they mentally and spiritually capable of getting over the hump and finally to a conference final? Also, with the successful regular season that you saw in Utah and in Phoenix, do they have what it takes to be conference finals worthy? And considering that Phoenix may go up against the Lakers in the first round, maybe not the best opponent that they were hoping for, and I hope not to hear any griping by the Suns or even Chris Paul in particular, because we all know that the one thing that's missing from his NBA resume is a championship. So we have to wait and see how that shakes down. But all of that, the Heat, let's see if they can get back to a final, the Bucks as we've talked about with Giannis, so many storylines that you could shake a stick at. And that's what's beautiful about this NBA postseason because even though at the end of the day it's going to come down to probably between the Lakers, Sixers, Brooklyn, I'm not going to say Utah, Phoenix, maybe I'll throw in Denver and then the Clippers. There are pretty much five teams that are going to win this thing. Can the Bucks get there and win? Yeah, I guess you can at six. But really, if you ask me, I think there are four teams legit that can win the title. And if you want to say maybe Denver, that's five. Because as we all know, it's usually the team that has the best roster ends up winning the title. And we will see it all start tomorrow night there in Indiana and in Boston as finally... The NBA playoffs are here. Now let me get to a couple other things before I move on to the NHL. The first thing is, I'm sure there are a lot of people not too happy about Alex Rodriguez teaming up with Mark Lohr to buy the T-Wolves. And I believe part of that also includes the Minnesota Lynx of the WNBA. And shouts to the WNBA starting their 25th season. So definitely have to give them some props. And I understand I don't talk much or if any about the WNBA, but considering that they're in their 25th season is an achievement to itself. So kudos to the WNBA and I hope they have the successful season moving forward. But when we look at Rodriguez and we understand him trying to buy the Mets there once upon a time and how that unfolded and then now here teaming up with Mark Lore, who is a guy that teamed up with Walmart or I should say was an e-commerce guy Jet.com and then teamed up with Walmart who bought them out to increase their online business. This is the endeavor or the next endeavor for these two guys. And I know there are some circles in the NBA that wish Kevin Garnett would have been part of the new ownership group in Minnesota. And it should have gone that way. I don't know the ins and outs about that. Now that would have been a better story considering that Kevin Garnett just recently has been enshrined in the Hall of Fame. And I'll get to that in a minute. But here it is. Alex Rodriguez is going to be part owner of an NBA team. And we know the Timberwolves in their, what is it, 32-year existence have one conference final and an MVP in Kevin Garnett to show for it. So let's see what they could do to turn this franchise around. And they do have some pieces there. We know about Carl Anthony Towns 
and also Anthony Edwards. Who knows what you're going to get from D'Angelo Russell here. But let's see what they could do to turn that franchise around because they've certainly been in the dumps now. Glenn Taylor, the current owner and obviously the original owner of this franchise, will have operation here for the next couple of years before he hands it off to Lauren Rodriguez. So it's not as if it's going to be a quick handing of the baton to the Laura Rodriguez group. So Taylor will still be part owner here or will be full owner until the end of the 2022-23 season. And then with the Hall of Fame there a couple nights ago where you had Kobe Bryant, the late great Kobe, as well as Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett be enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Now remember, this is the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. This isn't the Pro or NBA Hall of Fame, and I bring that up because I'm going to get to who are the finalists and who will be enshrined next year for Springfield, Massachusetts. But as far as Saturday night, I did watch the three particular speeches, one by Vanessa Bryant, which was very good. Michael Jordan was the person that was representing, as well as the widow of Kobe Bryant and Vanessa, and she had a lot of great things to say, no surprise there. Tim Duncan, who does not like a microphone, does not want to be in front of a camera, if you watch that, but he was very good in his speech, was pretty much to the point, said what he had to say, and uh, I liked where Duncan and how he came off, very good, but to me, I was waiting to hear what Kevin Garnett had to say, because not only him being a former Celtic, but we know he's very outspoken, very passionate, and he was pretty much straight to the point, had a couple things that he said in between, both he and Duncan, longtime battlers in the Western Conference there for many years. Obviously, a lot of dap was thrown around the room. KG to Tim Duncan, as well as Kobe. Same for Duncan to KG and the Black Mamba as well. So it was a love fest. Nothing really outlandish that was said in these speeches by these aforementioned players. But nevertheless, first ballot Hall of Famers, what a class. And congratulations to those three guys, as well as Tamika Catchings, Rudy Tomjanovich, and a few other people who were part of the festivities there Saturday night at the Mohegan Sun. Now, to transition to next year, the four guys that will make it into the hall, and I'm sure they're going to be a few, whether coaches or executives after that, but you have Chris Webber, Ben Wallace, the former Detroit Piston, Chris Bosh, and Paul Pierce will be the next group in line into the Hall of Fame. Pierce, no-brainer. Longtime Celtic, don't need to get into his resume. Chris Bosch, very good career. Hall of Famer, you know what? He's probably going to get in, in my book. He's not a automatic first ballot. Got to throw him in there. But again, the Basketball Hall of Fame is very lenient. It is not strict. It is not as rigid as some of the other sports. And as we've seen over the years, these Hall of Fames in all sports recently has not been for the creme de la creme. It's almost now become for the very good, not necessarily the great. And there is a difference between very good and great. And it's not an insult by any stretch of the imagination to name a player not being a Hall of Fame or not being a Hall of Famer. It's almost as if it's blasphemy or it's almost as if where are you coming from what is what are you talking about if you're not going to put a certain player in the hall of fame and i'm segueing that to chris weber because we know about his career fab five didn't win a title 
We understand the timeout there in the final seconds or the non-timeout against North Carolina is pretty much the one highlight of his career, of his basketball career, that is, because remember, that happened in college in a high-profile and a memorable moment in championship game history. But then his pro career got off to a tough start considering he was drafted by Orlando, traded for Anthony Hardaway to Golden State. That didn't go so well. He got traded to the Bullets at the time in Washington before ending up in Sacramento to where he became the all-star number one pick caliber player that he was. But when you look at the back of Chris Webber's basketball card, he was a very good player, had five great seasons, especially in Sacramento, didn't win anything, didn't win an MVP. But he's going to the Hall of Fame. I get it based on his body of work, his impact, etc. But if you ask me, and I'm a hard marker when it comes to this. And no offense to Chris Webber, but he's not a Hall of Famer in my eyes. Yes, we could go through some of those numbers. Yes, we could break down his impact with the baggy shorts. And what. And I understand that all encompasses him being part of the Basketball Hall of Fame. It's not the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. That's why Ralph Sampson is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And to me, it was for more what he did in Virginia than what he did in the pros. Because as we all know, he was not a great pro. But you've seen a lot of those players get into the hall that you could scratch ahead or certainly question on whether or not they belong there. And Chris Weber, unfortunately to me, is one of those guys. Because Weber, as we break it down here, when we look at Hall of Fame, and it's not just about the numbers, and although it does count, but it looks at all NBA teams, all-stars, you have to include that, but to me it's about the all-NBA Same for the NFL. I don't care how many Pro Bowls you make. It's how many All-Pros you have. And yes, although the numbers count if you're a quarterback or a wide receiver or a running back or a pass rusher, in the NBA, it's a little bit different. I understand if you're going ahead and having seasons where you're 10 years in the league and you're averaging 25 and 12, chances are you're going to be on some first All-NBA teams. Chris Webber wasn't that guy. When you look at his career, he's made only one All-NBA first team. Now, I understand you could say, well, he went up against KG, he went up against Duncan, he went up against a bunch of these other guys that were power forwards or forwards in the NBA throughout that era. But even after that, he made three All-NBA second teams and one third team, and that was it. So, right, I understand that if you're one of the top 15 players in the league, you're All-NBA, but we really look at first-team All-NBAs. And if he had about four or five that were on that list, then I could say, you know what, he's worthy of that because he was four times the first or second-best forward in the game during the time he played. But he only made one of those teams. So how could I look at that and he's a Hall of Famer? And you can look at a bunch of other players. And I don't want to pick on any other players. And again, this isn't a knock on Weber. We know that he was a very good to great player at times in this league. But when you look at the whole body of work, and that's what we're looking at here. We're not looking at four or five years. We're looking at the whatever many years he played, 15 years. He probably had about five or six good seasons. Is that Hall of Fame worthy? Well, you've had guys that have been first All-NBA teams 10 years. Or eight years, seven years, etc. And that's what I'm trying to say when it comes to the Hall of Fame, being a hard marker. And no disrespect to Chris Webber and what he's done. 
But when you look at the entire body of work, you have a lot more pulp than you have fruit. That's how I look at it. All right, now let's turn our attention over to the ice as the Stanley Cup playoffs commenced yesterday, or really on Saturday between Boston and Washington. And sadly, this is the polar opposite of what you'll expect in the NBA in this postseason because the storylines for the NHL pretty much either come out of the Central or the East. Yes, you could say maybe a little bit of the West with Vegas because they're the team that a lot of people will look at as well as the Colorado Avalanche as the two teams that could come out of that division and maybe thrust their way to a Stanley Cup. Also the Maple Leafs, which I'll get to in a minute, but unlike the NBA, there's not a lot that you could chew on here. And even with what's going on in the Central between Carolina, Tampa, and Florida, and you're going to have a grudge match between Tampa and Florida, as you saw there yesterday, I'll get into that in a minute. But I wish there were many angles that we could pursue here, although there are some, And if you're the diehard hockey fan, I'm sure you're probably thinking, Jay Reels, you don't know what you're talking about. There is a lot to sink your teeth into here, but I I just don't see it. And yes, there are some things that we could look at here and expound on and get into. And the first one right out of the gate is what happened in Pittsburgh yesterday between the Islanders and Penguins. Now, we know that the Penguins had dominated the Islanders during the regular season They had the advantage 6-2, to but it doesn't matter. Once we get into the Stanley Cup playoffs, it's a whole different beast, as we know. And yesterday was indicative of that because yesterday's Game 1 was, I'm not going to say a must-win, but was a huge opportunity for the Penguins to win that game because of what has taken place here over the last three years between the Penguins and the postseason. And a few podcasts ago, I mentioned how the championship medal of this team led by Sidney Crosby, defenseman Chris Letang, and Evgeny Malkin, who, although played the last few games of the season, did not play in game one yesterday. But when we check out their body of work, dating back to the 2018 season, when they lost the last two games against the Washington Capitals there in the conference semifinals, the following year they got swept by the Islanders. Last year they lost... In four games to the Canadians, and then yesterday losing game one to the Islanders, they have lost 10 of their last 11 postseason games. And if there was any team that needed to come out of the gate to get themselves into a groove, to get themselves feeling good, was the Penguins, because even with their championship pedigree, based on those three players alone, they still need to show and prove whether or not they're cup worthy or at least even to get deep into this postseason because what we saw there yesterday and granted, with less than four minutes to go after the Islanders took a lead there with Brock Nelson, they scored the goal 31 seconds later to push the game to overtime and the first thing you're thinking is momentum, advantage, Pittsburgh. But it took 16 minutes into the extra frame, Kyle Palmieri who had done absolutely nothing since the trade with New Jersey right before the deadline, only scoring two goals in the 17 games that he played in an Islander uniform, scored two goals in a game yesterday, and he was going to be pivotal going into this postseason. And I was going to circle him in particular because that's a guy that needed to get going if the Islanders were going to do anything in this postseason as far as scoring is concerned. Because we talked about it last year, how even though them bringing in J.G. Peugeot, and he did have a good postseason last year, But with no Andrews Lee and Kyle Palmieri fitting the bill 
to be that guy to provide another scorer, another sniper in this postseason. Well, game one, he showed and proved, and hopefully that means the confidence will expand, that he'll play a lot looser, not be as tight, and a big win for the Islanders yesterday. They have house money going into game two tomorrow night, and the Penguins right now, you have to wonder how their psyche is going to be because they do not want to go back to the island, to that barn, down 0-2, knowing that they could possibly stare at another sweep. Now, again, it's only one game. I'm not going to get crazy. I'm not going to think that the Islanders are just going to coast here, but you have to wonder about the Penguins' psyche knowing that they were down one late, came back to tie, and then lose in overtime the way they did yesterday. Certainly not a good spell if you're a Penguin fan. And to me, that's the one big theme we have here, as well as the Tampa Bay-Florida scenario because I believe it's the first time they're playing against each other in the postseason. They fought tooth and nail all year long in the Central Division. And in a game one yesterday where Nikita Kucherov, the MVP, who did not play in the regular season, came back yesterday to score two goals in his return. But the big goal there with a minute 14 to go, Braden Point, who scored a goal early in the game, broke the tie late to propel the Lightning to win 5-4. I could see that series just being a drag-out, knockdown, 15-round fight. I'm not going to say it's going to be anything close to what we've seen in the 80s as far as NHL playoff hockey is concerned, but I would guarantee if that was the case, that would be a bloodbath of a series. And I still think it's going to be chippy. The game was actually chippy at times. Nothing, anything to report as far as fisticuffs go, but I could see that being a long series because those two teams, they know each other well. They've played each other eight times in a regular season, and I don't remember what the final tally was. Not that it matters, but that's going to be A series to look out for. Carolina in Nashville. They'll have game one tonight. I could see Carolina just steamrolling. Maybe in five. I'll predict them right now. I'm not going to predict the Islanders or the Tampa, Florida series right now with one game in the books. I know I probably should have posted it on social media yesterday. So that's my error. Moving forward, that will not be the case. I can promise you that. So now we have a scenario in the East where we'll wrap up with Boston and Washington As we had another overtime game to start off the postseason. What a shock. We're going to see plenty of those, I would think, as we usually see during this time of the year. But the Capitals, who were able to win in overtime, where Nick Dowd got the deflection off a TJ Oshie shot to win 3-2 to open up their series. And Game 2 will be tonight down in the nation's capital. And I will not predict who will win that series considering they're one game in. Now, you also had out west with Minnesota and the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas, who is a team a lot of people, including yours truly, picked to go to a Stanley Cup. They lose in overtime yesterday, one nothing. So they take an early series lead to my guy Headstyle out in Minnesota, who I know is jumping up and down after that first game. So they steal the home ice from the Golden Knights early on. St. Louis and Colorado will have a game one tonight. Nathan McKinnon, who was expected to play, who had been out with a lower body injury. Brandon Saad, another guy as well, who who should be back. And St. Louis, who piecemealed it here over the last X amount of games to make it into the postseason. I could see Colorado winning. I'll give them one game, St. Louis, but I wouldn't be surprised if Colorado sweeps St. Louis. And then in the North, which is weird because you have a scenario... Well, you have Calgary and Vancouver finishing out the string. 
based on games they need to make up during COVID. And that's why the professionals, that's why they're finishing out their seasons. But I'm sure both squads, they got to be just in vacation mode right about now because both Calgary and Vancouver, they're going to finish out their season tomorrow and Wednesday. They have two more games to go before you could even get involved in the games up north between Winnipeg and Edmonton and Montreal and Toronto. So as weird as that is, and I understand we can look at these games as meaningless, who cares, but they have to finish out a schedule. They have to have it in the record books. Granted, these teams aren't in the postseason, but kudos to the players for finishing out the season and knowing that they have literally nothing to play for. So with that aside, Winnipeg and Edmonton, this is Edmonton's time here, you would think. They haven't been in the postseason in years. Connor McDavid, we all know, is a bright superstar in a shining NHL light where we have the aging superstars pretty much on their way out if your name is Alexander Ovechkin and Sidney Crosby. So when you have guys like Nathan McKinnon for Colorado as well as Connor McDavid, this is his time. You would think Winnipeg, tough defensive team, but I'm going to pick Edmonton in six. And then as we've said for the last couple of weeks, Toronto and everything that they've done going up against Montreal, no carry price. I believe he's going to be out. I got to double check that, but at least for game one. And if that's going to be the case, how is Montreal going to have any chance of beating Toronto here? I'm going to say Toronto in five. They've had a very good year. I know that they're looking at the big prize, taking one shift, one game, one period at a time. And uh, Toronto, if they can't come out of this round, then they're never going to win. That's all there is to it. So I'm going to pick Toronto here. And as I said earlier, I'm picking Vegas to go to the cup final and actually win. Now, the team that was going to play against was going to be the Rangers. (laughs) Ha ha. I know it was a little bit of a reverse jinx considering they had the number one pick in Alexis Lafreniere and some of the offseason moves that they made. But Rangers are long gone. And remember, we are going to look at that June 1st date with the country opening up here in the U.S. and Canada, who knows what they're going to do as far as having teams come south of the border and north. I know the NHL has said that they want an answer soon. I don't know what the backup plan is. They haven't really said. I'm sure, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that they'll probably use Detroit or Chicago, a city that's close, maybe even Buffalo, a city that's close to Toronto to have the Maple Leafs, if they do make it that far, to play in a conference semifinal, I should say in a cup semifinal, to have them play close to home in one of those cities. But the NHL are waiting till June 1st to get an answer. And you would think that they want to answer sooner than that. I get that the Canadian government, they're not going to turn around and tell Gary Bettman and company to say, all right, well, we'll let you know by, let's say, the 24th or the 31st. June 1st is here in a couple of weeks. So we could only hope and pray that the games north of the border will be played in its home arenas because of what's going on here in the U.S. and pretty much in certain parts of the world. Maybe Canada will follow suit. Remains to be seen. I would hope that that's the case because you don't want to have Toronto robbed of their own home ice and have to play their home games in Buffalo or in, Tor- or in Detroit or Chicago for that matter. So got a couple of weeks between now and then to see how that shakes down. 
But the final thing I want to discuss here is the reseeding when it comes to the playoffs. I'm going to get to the Rangers in a second. But the first two rounds, as we all know, they'll be played in everybody's buildings. But after that, when we get to the conference semifinals, or would have been the conference finals, I should say, while just call it the cup semifinals, they will reseed at that point and not have to deal with the old conference format because this year, unlike any other year, they're not going by conferences. Everything's by division. So for argument's sake, if you have all one seeds advance to the final four where you have in order Colorado with 82 points, Carolina with 80, Pittsburgh and then Toronto. I don't know how the tiebreaker with Pittsburgh and Toronto is because remember, they did not play against one another and I guess they have to base it Who knows? Maybe they're going to look at division records. I don't know what the tiebreakers are, but let's just say for argument's sake, Pittsburgh is your three seed, Toronto's your four seed. That means Toronto will face off against Colorado in a semifinal where Pittsburgh will face off against Carolina. So obviously if you have a situation where you have four seeds left and if it's one, two, three, four or one, two, two, four or two, two, three, four, however the point totals and the seedings fall that's where they'll reseed and your conference final will come out of that so I'll keep that in mind as we move along and then lastly the Rangers remember two weeks ago they got rid of John Davidson as a VP of Hockey Operations as well as the general manager and a one Jeff Gordon we know about Chris Drury him being anointed as the Replacement for one John Davidson, but now also the Rangers fired David Quinn, which comes as a surprise, but then not a surprise because if they're going to do a complete house cleaning, they might as well get rid of the coach. But let's face it, it was unfair to get rid of David Quinn. What was he expected to do this year? I know I picked them to go to the cup finals, but that was more of a reverse jinx based on what I said earlier. But the Rangers are on the come up. The Rangers have a young roster and a team that is built for the future. Why David Quinn gets the axe here? Unbeknownst to me, did not deserve that. But we get that in a day and age where if the owner is going to do a complete whitewash of upper management, the coach is also going to go too. Because you're not going to bring in Chris Drury, a guy who did not hire this coach, to then go into next year with... A little bit more expectations, but of course, if they don't go to a cup final or play in a conference semifinal, then you have to keep the coach. So for them to avoid that scenario altogether, you just get rid of the coach and bring in a new guy and start over. So that's where the Rangers are going to go. David Quinn gets jerked here. I'm sure he's going to get a job in two seconds considering, and I don't even know who's available right now as far as coaches go. I know Columbus, they fired John Tortorella maybe goes there. Same for Arizona with Rick Tockett being gone. So those are two openings that David Quinn could go to. We'll see what happens there as we get deeper into this postseason and obviously into an offseason, which will be well down the road into the middle of summer. All right, and speaking of summer, let's get right to it with the baseball. And the one thing I'm going to start us off with Has this first quarter, and most teams are at 40 games, some have been a little bit below due to COVID, the Mets obviously they've only played 34, but you have a lot of teams that are almost at that one quarter mark of the season. Has it been a little lackluster to you? Now, we do not have a dominant team, 
as we've seen. The Dodgers got off to that great start, and we know that they've fizzled, although they've played a lot better recently, and they've righted the ship somewhat. But besides the four no-hitters by a few pitchers that you never heard of, and the umpiring and replay reviews that have gone wrong here, most recent, the end of the KC White Sox game yesterday, where Jose Abreu scored the winning run on a wild pitch, but then replay looked like the catcher, Gallagher, was able to tag him in time. And with the slide by Abreu, he went feet first, but he tried to get around the tag, and it was just a weird play. I thought he was still safe, although it was close. It wasn't conclusive to overturn it. But with all of that that has transpired here over the first six weeks of the season, it hasn't really been a great start. You've had a lot of teams there in the middle of the pack that you expected to get out to great starts. You've had some disappointments, of course, which you always get, but some more than others. You had a situation with the Yankees recently where now they had another member of their coaching staff come down with COVID, including Gleyber Torres, who's going to be out for probably another seven days or maybe about five days for Torres. And mind you, all the personnel, or if not a majority of them, took the Johnson & Johnson shot. And I know that has a 70-75% chance of fighting off the virus. So unlike Moderna and Pfizer that are in the 90s, these players and coaches were ended up getting COVID a second time if you're Gleyber Torres. Also, Fernando Tatis Jr. is a guy that's now on the shelf due to COVID, and I believe he also got it one time during the offseason, if I'm not mistaken. So you've had these scenarios here where baseball, when you look at it from a whole, you don't have a lot to wrap your arms around, at least for me. And I love baseball. Now, the only thing that would intrigue me right now of this baseball season is what you see in the AL East to this point and the NL West. Now, there are other races in some of the other divisions. I know the NL East, but please, the Mets are 18 and 16. And although they're a half game ahead of the Phillies right now, as the standings constitute when you wake up this morning, but they're four games in a loss column and obviously have games to be made up. They're actually seven games when you look at it as of right now, because the Phillies have played 41 games, the Mets have only played 34. So, can you take the NL East seriously right now? Not really. But the AL East, where you have four teams separated by two games, and the Rays coming off of a sweep against the Mets, who went into that series winning seven in a row in a lost weekend in Tampa, so now they have to drag their tails up to Atlanta, and the Braves haven't fared pretty well this year, but watch, they'll go there and then Pretty much what we've seen at Turner Field over the years have now become a house of horrors there at SunTrust, Truist, whatever the name of that ballpark is right now. But the four teams separate in the AL East between the Red Sox, a game and a half ahead of the Blue Jays, but even in the loss column, followed by the Yankees and Rays. And then the NL West has San Francisco, a half game up of San Diego, who came off of a sweep of their own right over the weekend against St. Louis. Then the Dodgers, two games behind the Giants in an NL West, which looks like it's going to be feisty here. When you have the Giants in the mix, that helps because it's not going to be a two-team race, but we all know there's plenty of baseball to be played. But just looking at this first quarter mark here, you're not impressed by what you see. Yes, is it competitive? Yes, does this set us up for maybe a long, hot summer with some division races that we could actually jump up and down for that we could look ahead to say 
hey, we'll have some competition or at least some balance here in baseball that it's not going to be the Yankees, Dodgers, some of the other big market teams. You want to throw the Red Sox in there that are going to lay the foundation for what's going to lie ahead as we head deep into the summer in October. Let's hope that it becomes competitive, that these teams don't fall off, whether you're the Giants, whether you're the Milwaukee Brewers, whether you're the Seattle Mariners, we'll throw them in the mix. Kansas City, who had not played well, they lost a ton of games in the middle of that eight-game losing streak and that controversial ending yesterday. Who knows what's going to happen with the Blue Jays, who have played very well, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is on a hot streak. Are these teams going to be part of the mix here as we get to the dog days of summer? Obviously, it remains to be seen, but right now, you don't really have a very warm and fuzzy opening to your baseball season, if you ask me. Could it be compelling? Of course. Is it going to be a tight race? Is it going to be a bunch of teams jockeying for position? I can't answer that. Right, we could come back here next month at this time, and there'll be some separation, where we'll see the Dodgers have a five-game lead in the West, or the Yankees will pull away to a comfortable lead in the AL East. Or who knows what's going to happen with the National League East. Everybody thought it was going to be the most competitive and the best division in baseball, and it's, it hasn't even shown that. And it's indicative because when you look at the run differential for all these teams, there's only one team that has a plus run differential in the NL East, and it's the team that you least expect, the Miami Marlins. So as unpredictable and as crazy as this year's been, there really isn't much to report here with baseball. Yeah, there's some little news and notes I could get into when we talk about how with the Phillies, if you want to call them the fighting fills between Girardi and Gene Segura, for what that's worth, eh, I'm not going to get crazy about that. Corbin Burns setting the record there for most strikeouts without a walk to start the season, 58, where he obliterated the record there by Kenley Jansen years ago, 51 strikeouts to zero walks to start off the season. Former Nationals and Tiger pitcher Jordan Zimmerman retires, pitched 13 years, he threw the first no-hitter in Nationals history, two-time All-Star. All right, kudos to him, best of luck to his next endeavor in life. Corey Seager breaks his hand at first, thought maybe surgery, but they're going to give it some rest, maybe he'll heal on its own for about three to four weeks. He's in a walk year, not having a good year stat-wise. Four homers, 22 RBIs, 265 OPS, less than 800. Nothing to write home about. So he wants to get back on the field as soon as possible. Relocation for the A's. And we know the A's have been competitive over the years. They can't get their own stadium. As we've seen, teams just waltz on out of the other side of the bay, whether you're the Golden State Warriors going to San Francisco, the Raiders going to Las Vegas, and now you may have a situation where the Oakland A's may go elsewhere. Who knows? Is Las Vegas next in line? Considering the football team went there and they now have a hockey team, chances are you may have a baseball team in the years to come. So we'll keep our eye on that. Albert Pujols goes right up the freeway to the Dodgers. A shock there because they have Max Muncy to play first. We know Muncy's a left-handed hitter. Maybe they want to platoon him in Albert Pujols, I don't know. I thought that was an unnecessary signing, but hey, if the Dodgers want to bring in Pujols, God bless him. We'll see what he has left. And lastly, for the Met fan, I know what you saw Friday night or when you woke up to it yesterday morning, I'm sure you spit out your cornflakes because the Jared Kalenic era has begun. 
And when you look at their roster, that's like the New York Mets West with Justin Dunn, who went with Kellenic in the trade for, do I need to bring it up again? Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano. You have Paul Seawald, a starting pitcher. You have Chris Flexen, a starting pitcher. Uh, you would think that the, the Mets are now resided in the Pacific Northwest. And I believe there's one other guy on the roster who I, right now I can't think of right now. Oh, Rafael Montero was closing games for the Mariners as well. So you have half of the Met roster over the last four or five years become part of the American League West. But Kalanick not only hits a home run in his first major league hit, he performed the night before the Thursday to start off his era, but his first major league hit was that of a home run and then later had two more doubles. And since then, I believe he's only gotten one hit. I don't even think he's gotten a hit since then. So now he's batting, I think, 157. But still, Jared Kalenic, the guy who was traded for Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano, yes, Robinson Cano, who still owe two more years at $40 million after this year. Thankfully, they don't have to pay for him. But yes, now we have to shiver, sweat, and wonder what could have been in Queens is now in T-Mobile Park up in Seattle, Washington. So that's something that we're going to have to monitor from here on out. A guy that could have replaced Michael Conforto come next year. A guy that could have been our center fielder, unlike this year where we have Brandon Nimmo, who's been hurt, but also Kevin Pillar, who's filled in admirably. But... We'll never know what will amount of a one Jared Kalenic in Queens, but we'll be sure to follow him, as I said, up in Seattle. Now, let me turn my attention to the NFL here real quick because the schedule was released a few days ago. And as expected, Dallas at Tampa is your opening night for the NFL season. No surprise there, as I thought that that would be the case. But the one surprise, I thought that they would put the... Buccaneer-Patriot game between October 15th and November 15th. I figure maybe they want to get some cooler weather, a little bit of elements sprinkled in, maybe more of a week eight to see where both Tampa and New England stand as far as their seasons are concerned. And even with the improvements in New England, who knows if after four games there'll be enough to be on track to go up against a Super Bowl winning and veteran pretty much bringing everybody back into the mix with Rob Gronkowski another guy who's going back to Foxborough that matchup is now October 3rd as opposed to the 17th 24th 31st or even into November for that matter so that's a game that once the season starts everybody's going to be zeroing in on and it's going to be ad infinitum and ad nauseum at the same time that ugh uh, I don't even I'm not even looking forward to it So, week one, the other big game, especially here locally, you have the Jets in Carolina, so they might as well... So the schedule makers thought, let's just get this one out of the way, where you're going to have Sam Darnold possibly go up against Zach Wilson, and you know that when the schedule was released, and Sam Darnold, who, as we all know, very good guy, humble, etc., you know he's salivating at the thought of that game. And how he'll perform remains to be seen. But it's weird because on his way out the door, Teddy Bridgewater, the erstwhile quarterback of the Carolina Panthers, had not so nice things to say about the regime that's going on there in Carolina with a one-mat rule, saying that they didn't practice two-minute drills, they didn't practice any red zone stuff, 
And how that is possible coming from an offensive-minded coach and an offensive coach to begin with is beyond me. It's almost hard to even fathom that they didn't practice that stuff. Well, you would only hope, and in this day and age with the way information is processed, I'm sure it went back to the ears of a one-mat rule and you would think that he's practicing two-minute drills as I speak or red zone stuff as I speak because how he got away with that in his first year and whether that's true or not remains to be seen. Why would Teddy Bridgewater lie about that? Who knows? You would think he's you got to take him on his word. But that's going to be an interesting week one matchup between those two teams, especially with the quarterbacks. But when we look at the slate, and I'm not going to go week by week, people. I'm not going to break it all down. I'm going to start off with the toughest schedule in the NFL. Now, the one thing I do like is the second toughest schedule based on percentages or percentage points is the Baltimore Ravens. So when you see that as a Steeler fan, you do one of those. That's right. You just rub your hands. You hope that the Ravens have a bad season. And you think to yourself, all right, they have a tough schedule. The second toughest in the league. Let's get right at it. Hopefully they go 9-7 and and they're nowhere to be seen in the postseason. But then when you look at who has the hardest schedule in the NFL, that goes to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And of course, and it's right out of the gate because week one, one o'clock up in Orchard Park, they face off against the Buffalo Bills. And the Steelers, once again on the road, they never start their seasons at home. I don't know what the schedule makers have against the Pittsburgh Steelers, but be that as it may, I could care less. Week one, Pittsburgh at Buffalo is going to be fascinating to say the least. And with a full stadium up in Orchard Park, that is going to be a raucous crowd for Bills Mafia and for a team that's going to be expected to make it to a Super Bowl after what they accomplished last year. But you look at the schedule and the games that you focus in on are the Thanksgiving games. And you can't get crazy about these Thanksgiving games. I mean, geez, every year it's either going to be Chicago at Detroit, Minnesota at Detroit, and no offense to my two big Viking fans out there, Headstyle and Kev, the Viking fan for that matter. But when the first game is always that lackluster game because the Lions never seem to get anywhere in playoff contention or at least for a division or anything like that. So you always throw out that first game. The second game, Las Vegas at Dallas. All right, right now looks good. Who knows what's going to happen this offseason with Aaron Rodgers. I'm not going to go there as far as that is concerned, but you would think Derek Carr is going to be your quarterback out in the desert. And then your Thanksgiving night game is Buffalo at New Orleans. Now, why NBC has New Orleans on the Thursday night schedule three of the last four years? Mind you, there wasn't a game last year. It was supposed to be Baltimore-Pittsburgh. We know what happened with that game. But the prior two years, you had New Orleans hosting Atlanta. And then that was in 2018. And in 2019, they reversed where Atlanta was at New Orleans. So now the Saints have another Thanksgiving game that they're going to host. So what is it? Is the NFL now going to have Detroit, Dallas, and New Orleans be the Thanksgiving Day triumvirate? Uh, We couldn't get another two teams in there other than the Saints, or maybe the Saints go on the road? No, I don't want to see the Saints at all. And minus Drew Brees, and with Jameis Winston there, it doesn't have the same appeal. And one other thing, Brady, thinking about the matchup with Belichick, week four, 
He is probably at the cusp of breaking the all-time passing mark going into that week four game, depending on how many yards he averages. I believe he has to average a little south of 300 yards a game leading up to that game. So something to keep in mind for those who are looking at the record books. But the NFL schedule for Thanksgiving, nothing to write home about. And then you have a couple of Christmas day and night games where at least you have that to look forward to. And Christmas is on a Saturday. So you have Cleveland at Green Bay, which is going to be a very good game. And you would expect some snowflakes there after unwrapping some gifts and having some Christmas dinner and breaking out the hot chocolate, depending on what part of the country you live in. And then your night game is Indianapolis at Arizona. All right, not a great game on paper. Yes, Carson Wentz versus Kyler Murray, two teams that are expected to be better than last year, even though the Colts made it to the postseason at 11-5. But we'll see how the year breaks down and how that game will look come Christmas night. But to me, those are the big ones. Like the Sunday night, I'm not going to go through the Thursday night schedule. The Thursday night to me is always a bad, you may have some good matchups, but I hate the games as you've heard in the past. So I'm not going to get crazy about that. You have a couple of interesting Monday night games as we move along. And the first one being Baltimore at Las Vegas. So you're not going to have a double header game for the first time in years. Usually you have that 7-15 game and then whatever West Coast game to follow that. I like it that it's not a double header game because by then you're NFL'd out. And I don't care how big of an NFL fan, and I know with the 17 games and you can't get enough football, just have the one game. Let it be standalone. I like that better. Baltimore will go against the Vegas Raiders, as I've said. And the NFL schedule, as I just lost it here on my page, Monday night schedule, you have some good games here throughout the course of the year. You have some interconference games. I know Chicago at Pittsburgh is one game that you'll have. Now, we know that the Monday night schedule isn't going to be great, and they're also going to be flexing some of these games too, so that's something to keep in mind because although it's weird to have a Monday night game flex where we're used to seeing the Sunday night game flex, but I believe once you get past week 10, they will have the capability to do that. Your week 17, remember there's 18 weeks, Monday night, January the 3rd is Cleveland at Pittsburgh. But a lot of these other games, Rams at Arizona week 13... Giants at Tampa, Rams at Niners, Giants at KC. It's not a great Monday night schedule. Sorry. I'm not going to look at this and be pumped up and raring to go. And even though they've tried to improve the Monday night schedule here over the last couple of years, and including this year with ESPN now being a part of the package where they're going to have Super Bowl games on their schedule down the road, But unless they get deeper into the season and they're able to flex some of these games out, we'll see how that looks as the NFL season is still a ways to go. But the Sunday night games, and the first one is a head-scratcher. Why the NFL picks Chicago at the LA Rams is puzzling. Knowing that Cleveland is playing Kansas City in Week 1, why not have that game as your Sunday night game? We know what happened in the playoff game last year. It was very compelling. One of the better playoff games that we saw out of the plethora of playoff games. There was only three or four that off the top of your head that you could look at and say, wow, that was a very thrilling or riveting playoff game. We get Chicago, LA, the markets. Chicago now with a new quarterback and a one Justin Fields who will probably start the year. 
And then the Rams are the Rams with Matthew Stafford, but I'm not going to get crazy about that as a Sunday night game to kick off your schedule. Uh Uh-uh. But week two, Chiefs-Ravens. I mean, I could go through this whole slate, but again, you're going to have your typical games. You know, Browns at Ravens, that's not a typical Sunday night matchup, so that's going to be a week 12 game. Saints at Buccaneers. You're going to see the Saints a lot, even with Breeze not there. Vikings at Packers is late in the year. See what the Vikings do. Uh, again, Bills at Chiefs week five. That's one you're going to circle. The schedule is what it is. We understand not every week is going to be a marquee matchup. We understand that it's not going to be a playoff matchup week in and week out. But again, a little bit of a questioning when it comes to the schedule for some of the things that I mentioned before. And we'll see how the year goes. Still got a lot of time between now and then, people, as we well know. I don't know if those who really look deep into the schedule could find some nuggets or find some things that they could say, oh, this week, this game, we just don't know based on injuries, based on a lot of things. So although I didn't really go in, to me, when I look at the schedule, I look at who my team is playing against. And right now, I'm not going to get into the whole steel schedule. I talked about week one and them being the hardest. That's all you need to know. But with the Sunday night matchup, of the opening week. Of course, the first game, Thanksgiving is always a day you're going to look at to circle the calendar as well as Christmas, considering that it falls here on a Saturday. And then the final week, but we could break down all the division games, but we don't know how these teams are going to play. So there really isn't any need to get into that right now. So, but that's your pretty much the main part that a lot of people are focusing on when it comes to the NFL schedule. And I don't believe I have any news or notes. Do I have anything before we move on? Uh, yeah, I know Devontae Adams talking about his fate could be potentially sealed based on what Aaron Rodgers does, but I don't think he's going anywhere barring anything miraculous, as I've said time after time ad nauseum. And then I'm going to say this quickly about Tim Tebow and everybody's in an uproar over him being signed by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Don't blame Tebow. Take a look at the coach. Take a look at the GM, Trent Balky, and certainly take a look at the owner, Shad Khan, because those are the guys you need to focus on here. Tim Tebow himself coming back, and I understand people are sick and tired of Tim Tebow. And we all know the narrative about how he shouldn't belong in the league. And mind you, he's coming in as a tight end. He's not even coming in to be a backup quarterback because we know the job is going to be all on the shoulders of Trevor Lawrence. There is no way, shape, or form unless somehow, some way, with stupid analytics and they feel that Gardner Minshew may give the Jaguars a better shot to win week one. And I have to check the schedule to see who they play in week one. Off the top of my head, I don't know. But there is no way that we can look at Tebow and say, oh, he wanted this more than the organization did. If Urban Meyer was not the coach number one, Tebow would not be on that roster. Let's start there. And for him to be a tight end, to me, I think he's going to be more, dare I even save a blocking tight end? No. And who knows what type of offensive sets that they're going to use. As Urban Meyer said, he's going to use Travis Etienne, their second pick in the draft this past uh, April. He's going to be used multi-purpose. He's going to be a wideout. He's going to be a flanker. He's going to be a running back. And I could see the same pretty much for Tebow. Now, is he going to be a running back? No. Is he going to be a fullback? I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to 
lead some blocks along the way, how successful he's going to be, I don't know. And again, I'm not privy to this. I'm just trying to keep my mind open to the role of what Tim Tebow is going to be here. Because you're not going to bring this guy in to be a decoy. Decoy for what? And if he's going to be a tight end, I'm sure he's probably going to catch a lot of stuff underneath and try to get some separation and get those tough yards in the middle of the field. And if that, how many times is he going to be targeted throughout the course of a game? What, a handful at that at best? So blame the management. Blame the general manager. Blame the coach for bringing in Tebow. Don't look at Tebow and say, oh boy, here we go again with this guy. Because if it wasn't for the aforementioned coach, GM, and owner, Tebow would probably be in a studio somewhere getting ready for some sort of SEC spring camp for a lot of these college football teams. And I understand they want to also look at the whole Colin Kaepernick angle where, oh, how is Tebow in here, not Kaepernick? Can we put that narrative to bed, please? What does Colin Kaepernick have to do with Tim Tebow? Especially when Tebow's coming in as a tight end, not a quarterback. So I'm not going to go deep into that whole scenario. And we know about Kaepernick. And please, if Kaepernick wanted to play or be on a roster in the league, he'd be a backup. He doesn't want that. He wants to be a starter. And nobody's willing to promote him as a starter. That's all there is to it. So without even going an inch further into that, just let it be known that this isn't all on Tim Tebow. Look at Jacksonville and their hierarchy as to why they brought him in. Please. And that's it. I wash my hands and let's move forward. Uh. All right. Now let's wrap up with a couple of things here. I'm going to start with the Preakness Saturday. And with all that had transpired leading up to the race Saturday night, surrounding Medina Spirit, the Derby win, the testing positive for a steroid, not relinquishing the victory there at Churchill Downs a couple of weeks ago. He passed all the pre-drug tests leading into the race. Got up to a fast start as a 2-1 to favorite. A lot of people thought, oh geez, if Medina Spirit is legging it out here for two-thirds of the race, he's probably going to go the rest of the distance. Even with a horse like Midnight Bourbon, neck and neck pretty much over the last, I'd say, third of the race. Or maybe even more than that, maybe the last half of the race. But then, out of nowhere, came Rumbauer, who charged on the final third, was able to win by four and a half lengths to now lead into the Belmont Stakes with no drama whatsoever. And Medina Spirit did not finish second, finished third in the race. And a field of 10 horses. So no juice heading into the Belmont whatsoever. You're not going to have a triple crown threat, which would have added a lot of pomp and circumstance, especially in this neck of the woods with everything opening up. And I don't know what the Belmont if the capacity is going to be anywhere near 50%, as you saw there at Churchill Downs for the Derby. I don't know what the attendance was the other day in Pimlico. But now you're not going to get that unless there are two instances where you may get a lot of people go out to the track to begin with. One is because last year, remember the Belmont Stakes, there was nobody there. And for the traditionalist who likes to go out there, whether there is a Triple Crown threat or not, they may just go out there if it's a beautiful day whether they house 20, 30, 40, or 50,000 in the building or in the grandstand, whatever, or outdoors. I would think people would show up just because last year they were robbed of that and now they could be outdoors if it's an 80-degree day and sunny. And then the second thing is, 
Will we get to see Essential Quality or Mandaloon or some of the other horses that did not race in Pimlico? Granted that they have no reason to come back because it's not as if those horses could come back and try to dethrone Medina Spirit in a quest for a Triple Crown. But it is the Belmont. It is New York. It gives their horse an opportunity to win a race. It gives their horse some exposure. A weekend in New York. What the hell? Maybe they'll flood up to the border of Queens and Nassau and they'll have an event to close out the Triple Crown of Horse Racing and maybe have a day of it. Is that going to be the case? I don't know. I'm sure you may have some of these horses come back into the mix to race on this final day for all the things that I mentioned. That's not a promise. And maybe you get some people out there based on last year, who knows. But obviously, as far as storylines are concerned, you got nothing going into the Preakness. And then lastly, the PGA, which will be the second leg of golf's four majors, will tee off there on Thursday. Kiwa Island, the ocean course, which is about, I don't know, I've had to guess half hour, 40 minutes south of Charleston, South Carolina. If you remember last year, Colin Morikawa was your winner of the PGA. And as far as who could be the favorites going into this, we all know the usual suspects, people. Whether your name is Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, who, remember, is coming off that knee injury with the Masters, didn't make the cut. We'll see how his knee will respond here. And remember, prior to last year, he won back-to-back in 2018 and 19. So maybe he looks to try to get himself back on track on this course in South Carolina starting on Thursday. Justin Rose, Tony Finau, Bryson DeChambeau, who had a terrible Masters, so... You got a lot of guys that you can look at here, as well as Will Zalatoris, who had a great Masters there. I would think there's going to be a little bit of a spotlight on him based on what he did in Augusta last month to see how he could piggyback off of that performance onto the PGA. Hideki Matsuyama is another guy who won the Masters, how he performs here. A lot of people are going to look and see what he'll do throughout the course of four days, or at least the first two if he makes the cut. Jordan Spieth, who's played very well so far this year. Patrick Reed, I mean, you have a plethora of people. And I haven't even gone to Phil, some of the older guys, Lee Westwood, Tommy Fleetwood, you know, guys like that. I'd be interested to see what Bryson DeChambeau is going to do here. And I picked him to win the Masters. I was well off on that. John Rahm's another guy who's performed very well. I can see Rahm being part of the mix at the top of the leaderboard. Patrick Reed, another guy. Even Morikawa, got to throw him in the mix. I'm going to go with John Rahm. It's easy to go Justin Johnson and some of these other guys. I'm going to say Rahm because he's played very well here. Tony Finau is another guy, but he has a terrible putter. But he's always seems to be close, if not at the top of the leaderboard, and he always falters there in the final couple of uh, rounds. But I'm looking forward to it. PGA, which is usually performed later in the summer, but they moved it up, which was smart on their part. So now you get the four straight months where next month, obviously, you have the U.S. Open the weekend of Father's Day, and then the following, you'll have the Open out somewhere in London or Scotland for the British. So we'll take a look and see. I'm going to say John Rahm. If I had to pick one of the big guys, I'd say Dustin Johnson. How could you not? And he had a terrible Masters, so you know he's looking to rebound. Maybe a guy like Patrick Reed is another one. But I'm very interested to see Will Zalatoris. And I'm not sitting here right now to say that he's going to take the course by storm or is going to be that guy is going to 
have a carbon copy of what he did in Augusta, but considering that was his second major overall and the way he performed there, why would he not have enough juice to translate that and have enough confidence to go into South Carolina to that course to play just as well, if not better than he did in Augusta. So we will keep an eye on that as we head into the weekend and of course next week when we'll reconvene. So with that being said, people, let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Boston Bruins winger Brad Marchand after learning about a young girl who got hit by a stray puck during warm-ups prior to game one of their first round series in Washington on Saturday, had autographed a stick to get sent over to her. Very classy gesture on his part. The girl wasn't identified. I believe she was a young girl under 10. Hit with a puck. Wasn't seriously hurt, thank goodness. Because we know about that incident many years ago in Columbus with the girl. And that was before they put the netting up after that. And she unfortunately succumbed to that. But thankfully she wasn't seriously hurt. But by him being on the road, seeing that girl go through a little bit of trauma there and being injured and for him to provide an autograph stick. Great part on his part. So here's my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is to the person who pulled the stunt on NFL free agent cornerback Wontarius Bryant who received a call. I don't know if you heard about this, but he received a phone call from a number in the 404 area code and was believed to be Atlanta Falcons defensive coordinator Dean Pease. He had Bryant come down to schedule a tryout was turned away at the facility because no such call was ever made. So, which made Brian wonder, who in the hell not only would do such a thing in their right mind, but at the same time, who was the person that placed the call in the first place? I mean, that's a story you can't even make up. And then on top of that, give credit to Brian because he took the whole thing in stride, didn't fuss, caused a stir, handled it with a plume, just wanted to put it past him. He didn't really want to talk about it as ESPN and a bunch of other media outlets tried to reach out to him to get a story, to get some quotes. But he said, uh-uh. He posted everything on social media and Twitter. But man, did an excellent job in that process. But whomever pulled that, my guy or gal, whomever, you are my zero of the week. So that'll do it. Episode 194, just about in the books. But before I go, you know I have to spread the good word on this podcast I know you heard it at the very top but you also have to hear it here in closing to help promote the growth and expansion of this podcast I implore and ask you to please subscribe rate and review if you haven't done so already on wherever you get your podcasts so whether it's on Apple Google Spreaker Stitcher Spotify iHeartRadio Luminary CastBox Overcast Amazon Music wherever you get them please subscribe please rate Leave a review, four stars, five stars, whatever it is. I don't care what you say. Jay Reels knows what he's talking about. Jay Reels is off the cuff. He's off the top. He's off the chain. Whatever you want to say, please do that because all it's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, not just in sports, but all the podcasts in general. And therefore, to get the future guest, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, writer, blogger, studio host, because I want to have them share their experiences with me. In turn, I can share that with you. So by promoting the podcast, they'll know who the J Reels podcast and who I am. So please, people, go out there and do that. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so at the following. On Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels podcast, which is strictly sports. On Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels podcast fan page. And 
the old-fashioned way by email to jreelspodcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, send them my way and I'll be sure to follow up. And lastly, if you want to support this endeavor, you can please do so by going to my Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Patreon is P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to contribute, provide, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it when it comes to the production of this podcast, the upkeep of the website, equipment, etc. So if you could do that, once again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Because if you do or do not know, whether it's your first time, 10th time, 100th time, 194th time, you know. Now, this is what I love to talk about. It's in the DNA, it's in the blood to share my thoughts, opinions, analysis on everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels podcast. On the flip, baby.